in, in this sermon this morning, it's just a standalone sermon, and, and I've titled it the, the Protestant Work Ethic. Uh, what I hope is that by the end, you're thinking about and you are reflecting on how the things that you hope for and believe shape how you act and respond to life and especially work. That's, that's what I hope happens by the end that we're done with this sermon. And uh, I have a question for you to start that off. What do you think that God thinks about your work? Like, like the, the work you've done over the past 10 years or maybe just like the work week you just had? What do the voices sound like inside of your head that you imagine or you believe that God is actually saying to you that? Is it, wow, you're such a hard worker, good job? Is it, you were pretty lazy this week, you didn't get enough done? Is it something totally different than that? The answer to that type of question, it can shape the trajectory of an entire life or on a bigger scale, an entire culture. Let me bring it, bring it real specific. Have you ever walked into the house you live in and you'd been working really, really hard and you come in and there's a roommate or a spouse or a child or somebody and they're just like relaxing in like a big mess and you instantly get really angry. <laughs> there's, there's just something about like, I've been working hard and then you see somebody and you're like, they're not working hard and I should feel really angry. I, in, in fact, it's almost like I'm some kind of martyr in this situation. That, that I've been working so hard and yet the people around me aren't exerting the same amount of effort. And, and, and there's this idea, I remember this memory, it's so clear to me, um, I, when I was living in this community, this Christian community of people, and it was like a Friday or Saturday night, and, and this guy had brought over this video that he really wanted everybody to watch. It was on a DVD kids, let me come over here. Let me tell you what those are. Take, uh, and, uh, and we have this workshop and, and in the workshop, all the tools in there were just constantly getting disorganized. And I was fighting this uphill battle to try to organize these tools. And so everybody was watching this DVD in like our commons area. And I'm, I'm trudging back and forth and I'm like glowering at them through the window as I'm doing this work. And it's Friday night. Like I should have just been hanging out and having a good time. But because I decided I was gonna work hard then, then I had this perception, well, so should everybody else. They should be working hard too. It's time to work. It's time to do things. What, whatever, you, whatever your ideas and opinions are about hard work, you might think they came from you or just came from your parents, but no, that's, that's not true. There's, there's whole cultures that we swim in that help to define and organize what we think work is about, what's virtuous or holy or good about work, and what's not. And so as we look at these scriptures today, when I saw this scripture, I instantly thought of the Protestant 
work ethic because Paul is writing way before anything like that ever existed in a very specific context. But when I see and hear people talking about working hard all the time, I just can't help but think about all the things my culture has taught me about work ethic and how that approves you before your neighbors and or God or gives you your sense of self-worth and all these things. And I'm thinking about the culture that we live in where when March 2020 hit, so many people realized how completely and totally exhausted they were and said, you know what? Yeah, I'm quitting. I'm You know, the rage quit, all that. Everybody, everybody quit everything in March of 2020, and people are still quitting now. It's like a backlog of needing to quit jobs for a couple hundred years, and we're experiencing it all at the same time. It's like, I'm quitting for my ancestors that needed to quit. And I think that's for a good reason. And as we look at these scriptures, I wanna try to, in the span of 30 minutes, give us a bit of a history. It's going to be a bit of a history lesson today. And I want to touch on some moments in the past 2000 years of Western uh, history and Christian history. And I want to give you a different paradigm to think about work. So starting in verse six here, Paul's writing, by the way, this is one of Paul's, if not his earliest letter that we have, it, it could be his, his earliest one. And he's writing to this group of people in, in Thessalonica, and you can read about his journeys there um, in, in the book of Acts, I think about Acts 16, 17 in there. And he's gone there and a church sprouted up from his ministry. He's, he's gone away and done other things. He got pushed out by persecution and he's writing these letters to the Thessalonians and he's teaching them um, and exhorting them on various issues. So that's kind of the, the background here. So verse six says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you brothers and sisters to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. So, this idea of being idle, when I, when I thought about that, I'm like, there is a, such an a ingrained specific picture of what most of us think about when we hear that word idle and we think about an idle and disruptive person. And you might even think about yourself. You might feel even a twinge of guilt, some of you may, uh, a twinge of guilt about what happened in your work life last week or yesterday or the day before that or that somebody else is working overtime and you're not and you're having all of these feelings about this. We're running this through our, our cultural lens. Somebody who's not like this, who's not idle, I imagine is the person who gets up Monday morning, their alarm goes off at 5 a.m. and they work out then they eat their vegan breakfast and then they iron their clothes and they get dressed and they go into work and they're there before everybody else and they work hard all day long. They never get on YouTube. They never get on Facebook. They're not on Instagram, not even one time. No scrolling, no nothing. They work hard all day long and then everybody else leaves the office and then they just finish up that project that somebody else didn't finish and then they get home and, they do, and then they do their yoga or something like that. Then they cook a nice dinner of broccoli and and, and, and baked chicken 
or something like that, and they do something with their kids if they have kids, and, and then they do it all over again, right? And, they, and then they, they end up working 50, 60 hours a week. That's what I kind of think about as the opposite. Well, I've, I've kind of seen that, that picture over and over, and to the point where working overtime, being the last one that leaves, is kind of this almost like glorified and elevated status. Like I get to kind of feel really good about myself, even though I feel like crap and I might be treating people poorly in my life, but hey, I'm working really hard. Anybody ever been in a work environment like that where it's just kind of like, yeah, if we're honest, pretty much all of us, if you're old enough, are going to raise your hand. You've been in some kind of work environment where the one who leaves last gets there earliest, finishes the group project that everybody else is slacking on, those kind of things. That's the person that's basically like a, a modern day saint in our culture like Mother Teresa and then the corporate guy who works 65 hours every single week and neglects his family, except for when he goes on a vacation once or twice a year, but he's still got his phone and he's still emailing and he's still doing all this stuff. So Paul says, stay away from believers who are idle and disruptive and don't live according to the teachings that you receive from us. What I don't think he means is somebody who works 30 to 40 hours a week or something like that and, and clocks in and does their job and goes home and they, yes, they get distracted on YouTube and they get, I don't think he means that person is an idle and disruptive person. In fact, this is what, let's skip down to verse 10 for a second. It says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Okay, so that, that's a pretty big, pretty big spectrum between the 65 week an hour corporate guy and then over here we have somebody who's just refusing to do any work at all. Like if you don't do any work at all, then, then you don't eat. So that kind of clarifies it, kind of gets us out of our kind of cultural framework there for a minute if we think about that. So in verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So when we understand the context of Paul's letters, here's something that probably was happening, that some of the people who became Christians, they got really obsessed with the idea that Jesus was gonna come back any minute. And, and so that everything going on in the world it didn't really matter anymore. As long as you had this idea in your mind that you believed Jesus and you had faith, it didn't really matter. You didn't need to like take care of your business or your family, your welfare. Like you could just kind of sit around and mooch off of people because Jesus was gonna come back and change the whole thing anyway. And, and Paul is not, he's, he's like, no, no. And I wonder if since he, he hadn't been writing letters to churches wrong, I wonder if like, if you look at his other letters, you see like an over, over correction in some of these areas of like, I just wanna make sure you realize this, okay? That we don't know when Jesus is coming back. You know, like if, if you could do the underlines and all that kind of stuff, maybe he used that. I don't think they used that stuff back then. But sometimes he says, see what big letters I'm writing? Sometimes he says that. So maybe he used bigger letters when he was saying this stuff. So in 1 Thessalonians, 
in chapter five, verses one through four, this is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, talking about when, when the Lord, when Jesus comes back. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which means you don't know when. And uh, verse three, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. So what Paul is doing there is he's trying to shape the way that the Thessalonians are hoping for this future. And he's saying, yes, this is going to happen in a time that we can't predict. We can't get out special calendars and do all these calculations and figure it out and do doomsday prophecies about all this stuff when Jesus comes back and writes everything. It'll happen when you don't expect it to. That's when a thief comes, when you don't expect them to. But you don't have to be worried about it because you belong to God. You're children of the light and children of the day. So you don't have to be stressed and anxious about this and you still need to work. Don't expect somebody else to feed you while you sit around doing nothing. So what Paul found is that whatever people, the people in, in, in this letter that he was writing to, whatever they focused on, whatever they built their anxiety around tended to shape their, their beliefs and their actions in the world. And it's the same for us today. Uh, so in verse 13, this passage finishes with him saying, and as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. And here's where the history lesson kind of begins outside of the biblical context and history that we've been talking about. What does it mean to do good? What, what part of what you do is doing good unto God? Is it everything that you do? Is it brushing your teeth? Is it the money you make? Is it taking care of children? Is it the time that you volunteer in a nonprofit or at church? Is it all of those things or none of them? Depending on how you grew up, everything from the, the type of church you went to, to your race or ethnicity, to how old you are, to your things that you've read, all those things work together to shape how you think your gender, all that stuff shapes those things. But there is a bigger pool that we all live in that changed the way that work was looked at for the entire Western world. And I, I, I want you to stay with me. You know, you know I, go, I have to go some places sometimes, but I'm gonna bring it back around, right? So there are these two guys in the 1500s, one's, got, one's name was Martin Luther, not, for those of you who are real bad with history, not Martin Luther King Jr., very different guy. This guy is a white German dude, okay, who was a priest in the Catholic Church. The other guy is John Calvin. We'll talk about him in a second. So Martin Luther, he was a priest in the church, and he got really fed up with some of the practices that the Catholic Church was engaging in. And one of them was indulgences, where you could, you could buy your forgiveness from sin. 
And at this time, the man, the Catholic Church was like, it was like the mafia. It was run by this family called the Medici. And they kind of like, they just kind of ran everything from this economic point, milking the money out of, out of the, the peasants and all that. So he, so Martin Luther, he writes these 95 theses and he, and he, according to legend, he nails them up on the, on the Wittenberg church and starts this huge revolution and revolt against the Catholic church. And things started changing real fast for a lot of reasons I won't go into today. I love history. And if you ever want to just sit and talk about all this, I could talk about this for a long time. I'm not going to go on a lot of it right now. But what, one of the things that happened is the Catholic church had doctrines about work. And it was that the work that was special, that was holy, that was approved by God was the work of priests and bishops and uh, nuns and, 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 and uh, uh, all of friars and, and, and monastics and people like that. And so our job, if we didn't do that kind of stuff, was to just basically support that work. But when Luther came around and he started saying all these things about the Catholic Church, one of the things that he did that was incredibly powerful in shaping what we think about today is say, no, all work is holy. All work is approved by God. That you could be, you could be a garbage man or you could be a milkmaid or you could be a priest and all of it is good. All of it is is holy work approved by God. God looks at it all of the same value of the same content. So that's one of the things that was going on there. Just, that's just a tiny little piece. Martin Luther, I don't, I, he's, I, I don't, he's not a hero or a villain to me. He's, he's a guy, really influential guy. And then this other guy, John Calvin, around the same time, he was exiled from his home for his writings that he was doing, his theology. And one of the things that he came up with was this doctrine of predestination. And it was the idea that he found in his readings of scripture that some people would be saved by God and that nobody could do anything about who it was, only God could. So some people were predestined to be saved and some people were predestined not to be saved. And all power and authority about how that happened was only happening in and through the work of God. So there's a lot of things changing about what people are thinking. Both of these ideas, they caught on. They caught on really big and, and people started embracing them. But here's what happened. When the just regular old folks started thinking, um, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. I can't just now go to the priest and confess and, and then know that my sins are forgiven and I'm in good standing with God. But now under this Protestant uh, definition of Christianity, some people are saved, some people aren't, and nobody knows. Nobody knows what it is. That produced a ton of anxiety. And so what people then were able to do is say, and I know there's a lot of other factors, but they were able to say that, hey, but I can work hard. I can work hard. And God approves of my work. So if I work really hard, maybe that will be proof that I'm saved, that, that I'm in good standing with God. And so there was like this, 
this pull between these two things, this thing that sounds really great of like God approves of everybody's work, but then this other piece of, but we don't know who's gonna be saved or why. So it builds this anxiety. And the thing that could fill that anxiety was working more and working harder. And so you've got anxiety about being in this elect group of people being saved. And then you've got plus all the work that is good and holy that anybody could do. And that equals work as hard as you can, be as thrifty as you can, because holy people don't spend money on frivolous things, to reduce your anxiety and convince yourself and others that you are saved by God. Wow. That's, talk about like unintended consequences there. At least it, 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 seemed, it seemed that way. And, and I just gotta share this. The ironic thing is, it was kind of the thing that the straw that broke the camel's back for Luther was the whole indulgences thing. It was about sin, right? And being forgiven. But the, the, the unintended consequences are, then you got this other guy, Calvin, writing after Luther does his thing, and he makes people so anxious through his theology about whether they were right with God or anymore. The Catholics were still good. They're like, yeah, I went and saw the priest and and forgiven and everything's good. But us Protestants, we're like, we better work hard. We better not spend any money on anything. We better save it all up. And we better make sure that we're doing everything we can to show that God approves of us. Even if you've never had those thoughts before, it's something that's been handed down to you in a certain type of way, whether said or unsaid, just like when we all raised our hand about that martyr, that work martyr mentality, that culture that we're aware of or have worked in or we live in and work in right now. So back to verse seven in Paul's writings. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. So, Paul, if he knew the lens we read that through today, he'd say, nope, let me write another third Third Thessalonians. It's not what it meant. It's not what I'm trying to say. Like Paul was there for a little bit of time and he was doing all this work and he's trying to show the, the Thessalonians that they still need to work. They still need to contribute. They still need to take care of each other. They still need to earn what, uh, what they eat and not become a burden on other people. In fact, he says in some of his letters, like, hey, make sure you work also, so you have something to share with somebody else, not to build up like the, an infinite level of savings or something that you never spend, but to share, to be able to share. The problem is this anxiety that we've inherited and this work ethic that to be approved by God, we've got to do these things. It created a wonderful vehicle for the way we live in a capitalist system right now. And what I mean by that, I wanna talk about three, three quick things about what that means. When capitalism started to come in 
it started to disintegrate the traditional ways, the religious ways that people made sense of their lives. And it also came in in a time where the idea that anybody like a priest or a bishop or somebody, some religious leader could see the whole picture. Nobody could see the whole picture anymore. Everybody had fragments. And what that meant was that we could then, had to, we had to grab onto something. We couldn't grab onto this uniform culture because it was breaking and splintering apart, Luther's unintended consequences as well, into all these factions. And we couldn't hold on to knowing that we're forgiven by God. And so what we had left was work, was our careers, our post-religious calling. It was a calling. It's like I got it, but what I do for my job has to, it has to check all the boxes. It has to be ultimately fulfilling so that I can work really hard all the time and that it gives me this sense of satisfaction that goes beyond any other religious satisfaction I could have gotten before. <sighs> I feel like I might have filled you guys up too much with information here. I told you it's gonna be a history lesson today. It's not a history lesson every Sunday, but it's kind of one today. I wanna bring in one more guy, one more guy. There's a guy named Max Weber, and he was also German, and he was writing at the height of the capitalist industrial movement in the early 1900s, and he wrote this book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, and it's considered a founding text in soci economic sociology and a milestone in a lot of ways. And, um, Writing about his book, I want to read to you a, a little bit about uh, the description. In the book, Weber wrote that capitalism in Northern Europe evolved when the Protestant, particularly Calvinist ethic, so Protestant, what Luther started, Calvinist predestination, influenced large numbers of people to engage in work in the secular world, developing their own enterprises and engaging in trade and the accumulation of wealth for investment. In other words, the Protestant work ethic was an important force behind the unplanned and uncoordinated emergence of modern capitalism. Okay? So, this idea of capitalism, there's other theories about, about how it came up, came around from these two ideas of work being elevated, and that's a good thing, right? But then coupled with our anxiety about where we stand with God. And I have a lot of uh, things to add to that that I'm kind of just gonna move past because I'm realizing um, how much history we've already had here, but we could talk about it more later. But I wanna bring it home with this today. How many of you have to stay busy? Okay, so you hear that, you hear Paul say, stay away from people who are idle and disruptive, and you're like, yes, absolutely, yes. Idle, bad, it's bad to be idle, bad to be a busybody, right? Walking around, messing around with other people's affairs. 
But a few weeks ago, we preached from Leviticus in the year of Jubilee about rest, right? About the importance of rest. And it's all throughout scripture. The only thing, the only, the only thing holier than God, God's self in scripture throughout the arc of it all is rest. And so as you consider, what the reason why I wanted to take that time to show some of those connections, I want you to consider that the ideas that you have been handed about how hard you work and that you can't be idle and just do nothing, it doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from some um, altruistic, always true idea. It comes from a particular combination of cultural elements that sparked this way of thinking and relating to the world. And I want you to think about that because I want you to be able to challenge it in your life. We don't have to work all the time. We don't have to feel guilty about being idle and being, even being a busybody, even going over and being like, girl, did you hear what's going on with so-and-so? Like just taking some time to do a little bit of, you know, idle chatter. It's okay. Like it's okay to sit around and talk about what's, what's going on with your favorite sports team or whatever. I, rem- I remember, <laughs> I, th- this is a sermon. This is something I've had to learn the hard way over the past several years. And I'm still learning it. Sometimes I'm still a lot busier than I want to be. But I remember sitting, I was in my, it was in my early 20s and, uh, I was sitting at a, it was, probably, it was a big football game, might have been the, even the Super Bowl, and I was sitting with some friends, we're drinking some Bud Light, you know, and, and they're talking about the game, and somebody says something to me, and my friend Josh, he goes, Jamin's not thinking about this game, he's thinking about how he should be out saving the world right now. And I was. <laughs> I was like, this stupid football game, like, who cares about this? There's people dying in the streets. And uh, what I had no idea how to do at that point in my life was just rest. And here's the thing. Some of you are incredible at really working really hard all the time. Some of you are amazing at it and you can go like years just grinding and doing that stuff, right? I'm not one of those people Like the idleness catches you one way or the other. So there's, you know, there's all these recovery centers in Nashville and I'm I'm connected to some of them in some different ways through different people I do ministry with. And, you know, one of them was called the the Center for Excellence. I believe that's what the, the whole name, I can't remember the, I think it's called the Center for Excellence. And, you know, it was in, it's an in-treatment or was an in-treatment recovery facility long-term for the hardest working people. The people who ended up in there were like the neurosurgeons who they worked so hard for so long that they couldn't, they, they started drinking so much because of the lack of rest in their lives that they would show up to do brain surgery drunk. It's, it was the, the people who had achieved every, the people on the late night talk, how did you achieve this success? Well, I just outworked everybody else. I just worked harder than everybody else. 
And now I'm here, I'm saved, I'm approved by all, right? And then you go up and you slap your friend on national TV, right? That's what happens to you. You might be able to work hard for longer than me without a break, but eventually you break. You either take a break or you break. You know, Paul's talking about working hard and doing all this stuff, but when he first met Jesus, he, he, he sat down somewhere for like some years and he just sat and he just learned and he just relearned life before he ever did anything or went everywhere because he, he was working at such a breakneck pace that he, he got to the point where he thought he was following God by like locking up people and getting people killed who believe something different than him. So God said, you know what? You're going to rest for a while and just let all that mess catch up to you and, and, and see, see what that does in your life. Are you ever paralyzed by the amount of things that you are thinking in your head you have to get done? Yeah. So, so it's like, I can't be idle. I have to work hard and get all these things done, but then it leads to idleness because you're convinced that all these things have to get done. And so you end up, a lot of times, at least I do, get nothing done, either now or 10 years from now when you walk into surgery drunk. Whatever your surgery room and drug of choice is, right? It comes, it'll get you. Uh, there's this incredible, you incredibly unique person named Tracia Hersey. And she has this uh, ministry called the NAP ministry. Anybody heard of that? You ever seen anything about that? And she's like a performance artist, but she also has a, like a, a biblical studies PhD or something like that. She's just this very eclectic version. She's a, she's a middle-aged black woman. And she realized for herself the importance of rest and, and just taking naps. And so she started to change her life around the idea that she wasn't a machine that was approved by God or by anybody else based on the output that she was able to maintain. And she, draw, she draws very clear lines to capitalist idea of chattel slavery and all kinds of things like that. She challenges things like the feminist movement to say, why women would you want to work like the men do? That's not helpful for anybody. So she makes all these amazing connections and she talks about how important it is to see ourselves as uh, human beings made in the image of God that are not defined and approved by our work. Here's a, here's a quote from her around this. Rest pushes back and disrupts a system that views human bodies as a tool for production and labor. You ever felt like that? Fix me up, doc, so I can go back and be a tool for production and labor. To what end? Max Weber says capitalism is all based on logic, but it's completely illogical. 
Why do we need to make all the stuff? Why do we need to save up all the stuff? We don't, we don't need to. We just don't have anything to put in its place. We took God out of the place and there's nothing to put in it. So we just have to keep working and keep doing and keep, and keep going and going and going because if we stop, we'll be faced with the emptiness. We'll be faced with what am I worth? Where does my value come from? So she says, rest pushes back and disrupts a system that views human bodies as a tool for production and labor. It is a counter narrative. We know that we are not machines. We are divine. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is trying to talk to the Thessalonians about these things. And he has this to say, this, this is such a non-anxious description of, of what we do here, starting in, in verse eight. Um, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, he's talking about dead or alive, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as in fact you are doing. So he talks about this, this soberness and, and he talks about putting on love and, and the hope of salvation like an armor. And he reminds us that we are not under the wrath of God. That we are under God's grace and saving salvation. So what do we do? What do we do when we remember those things? Well, he says, we build one another up. Encourage one another, build one another up. So, I said in the beginning, I'm closing now, that I hope that in what we talked about this morning, you would be able to think about how what you hope for, especially around work, how what you hope for, it shapes your attitudes and your beliefs and what you do. So I hope that we've sufficiently kind of turned some of those narratives on their head enough not that you're done with this topic now or you just go back and just keep doing the exact same work schedule, but that you get a little bit more curious. Uh, I, I shared an article with our staff not long ago. There's this experiment. I can't remember where it's going on. There's all kinds of experiments like this going on because the realization is happening in different ways in different pockets. But it was, hey, what would happen if we paid people the same amount uh, in, the, in this company but we only, they only had to work four days a week, or they only had to work 30 hours a week, and we still pay them the same. And so they, they were gonna like do this experiment for a year, and when I read the article, I think there were six months in, productivity had gone up. 10 less hours working. You know why? Because they weren't as anxious. That the, I gotta do so much, didn't lead to so much idleness. So I just want us to think about that and think about and realize that the heart of the Christian message is not you're approved by how hard you're working every day, 
how much you can possibly get done. You don't have to be a work martyr. But we can be creative in the way that we respond to that culture, just like the Thessalonians had to be creative in the culture that they were in and how they responded to it. We believe that each of us is divine and that we partake from the same table that the God in flesh, Jesus the Christ, offered to us. That's where our security comes from. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this congregation, this group of people. Thank you that they are beloved by you, no matter if they check everything off their to-do list this week or build up enough equity in this, that, or the other. And I pray that we would be able to find some rest in that. Amen.